crucial to science is the integrity of the process. In order to trust the results of a study, in order to be assured that the answers gained and analyzed by the researchers and presented by the authors, the audience want to know that the results are not affected or altered by any conflicts of interest that the researchers may have had. We need to know if there is a possibility that the data, the analysis, or even the collection methods were not skewed in a way that may present evidence favorably, unwarranted, towards the goals of the funders or anyone that may gain from the presentation of the results. In the field of science dealing with genetic engineering, special scrutiny is brought to bear from those organizations with an interest in discrediting the science of GMOs. In this case, researchers must be extra scrupulous in disclosing any potential conflicts of interest, even if there is little possibility that the results may be skewed. Thank you for downloading and listening to Iconocast, the Science and Science Advocacy Podcast. In this, our 22nd episode, we present Dr. Anastasia Bodner. Anastasia is a repeat guest on Iconocast. She is a science communicator and science policy expert with a Ph.D. in plant genetics and with a minor in sustainable agriculture from Iowa State University. Anastasia is the director of Biofortified.org, a nonprofit organization with a mission of communicating the science of genetic modification. You're listening to Iconocast with Dr. Greg Layden and me, Mike Hobrick. Well, um, thank you for joining us on another episode. This is your second time joining us on Iconocast, and we do appreciate you being a willing guest. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit about Biofortified, some of the background on what's going on, because there have been some uh, issues that have come up lately. So if you could first just give us some background on what your organization does um, and um, what the purpose of it is and who the players are in what's going on right now. Hi, I'm, I'm Anastasia Bodner, and um, I founded Biofortified with um, Carl Harrell von Mobil. And um, the goal of our organization is just to help um, people have a better understanding of issues in food and agriculture. Um, we primarily talk about biotechnology, but other issues that show up are um, pesticides and um, food regulations, uh, worker safety. Um, we cover a lot of things. Um, we're a completely volunteer organization. Our budget is ridiculously small. And, um, you know, we, we just love talking about science. Okay, great. Thank you very much. What what came up recently that became an issue as far as transparency? Sure. Um, so try to try to be brief on this. <laughs> um, there's a lot of connected issues um, that makes it a little bit complicated. But um, long story short, we had a, a crowdfunded um, project, um, the Citizen Science Project, to test the hypothesis of whether wildlife prefer um, non-GMO or GMO corn. Are, we expect that there would be no preference. We sent ears of corn out to people all over the United States and had them um, set out the corn in their backyard and take pictures, and then we compared the before and after pictures to see if there was a difference. One of our collaborators on that project unfortunately acquired a conflict of interest um, during the course of the project and did not let us know. Um, we ended up hearing about it through rumors. And um, because it was such a public project, um, it was just something that we couldn't let go. Um, and so we really had to um, 
remove that person from the project. And, and now we're very excited to move forward and get this finished. What's the most important is getting the citizen science work done and um, getting this paper published. Any other reasons that you would be uh, not willing to or not wanting to say the name of that person? I would understand if you don't if you don't want to discuss who that is in particular because of you know future future accidents that might happen and being on a podcast. But but do you want to name him or should we just not refer to him? I don't think it's necessary. I think that we can definitely have a conversation about the problems of conflicts of interest in science without um, diving too much into this particular. Okay. Can I just ask one question? Was his conflict of interest on the side of the corn or on the side of the wildlife? <laughs> There were there were no relationships to Smokey the Bear, as far as I know. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if bears eat corn, but perhaps the deer. Oh, they do. <laughs> they do. Yeah, believe it or not, they do. We had a couple of examples where the bears ran off with the corn during the experiment. Yeah. Well, can you just tell us what the uh, what the outcome of the science part of this was? What just you know was there a difference between GMO and non-GMO corn? Well, first of all, was your corn identical? Otherwise. Sure. We did some compositional analysis, you know, looked at, you know, the, the protein and fat and some of the other um, constituents in the corn, and they were all the same. Um, the, they were genetically the same other than the biotech trait. And um, our preliminary results show that there is no difference. Um, we had um, some, of the, um, some of the participants weighed the corn before and after in addition to taking pictures, and all of that data also shows that there's no difference. What was the biotech trait? Um, it was stacked, um, both BT and Roundup Ready, if I recall correctly. Yeah. So good. why did you do that experiment? <laughs> Are we going to talk about conflict of interest? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we will a second. I just want. I just. I think people are going to want to know, like, what, what just to show. I know. How silly that idea. Yeah, this. The science is really cool. You know, there's so. Unfortunately, there there have been some delays for various reasons um, that I won't go into now. When we when we first had the idea for the project was in 2015, and at that time there were quite a few YouTube videos and memes going around um, where people had put some corn in their backyard and said, "Look, you know, the squirrels or whatever animals happen to be in their yard, or maybe chickens or whatever, they only ate the non-GMO corn and they won't touch the GMO corn. See, the animals know better, shouldn't we?" And that was sort of this. So with the presupposition that the um, animals have some sort of way of um, using their uh, infrared vision that we don't have access to to see that there was insert there in the um, gene that that glowed red and, and caused them to avoid it, or I guess I'm trying to figure out how would how would a squirrel know the difference between an, an engineered um, ear of corn and a um, and an organic. For example, in corn. Well, so assuming that the ears were otherwise identical, which wasn't in a lot of these, you know, informal examples, um, you know, there could still be something there. You know, if, uh, you know, the BT is not expressed at a very high level, but if, if you had enough BT there, it could potentially alter the taste maybe. Um, and in these examples, if they were using... Um, you know, field corn, uh, and then they had a, uh, you know, something that was bred for, a, you know, better flower quality or something, then sure, there might be texture differences or other sensory qualities that maybe squirrels did prefer. And so we wanted to eliminate all those other um, potential reasons and focus on just the, be just the um, biotech traits. 
If you could come up with a seed, corn or any seed, that bears and squirrels would avoid, it would completely revolutionize the birdseed industry, which is not a small thing. The birdseed industry is a multi-billion dollar annual industry, and something like a third of the birdseed is eaten by squirrels and, and bears. That's true. We, we have so it's unfortunate that your, your, your findings were negative. Okay. So now, what about the conflict of interest? Can, can you say anything about this particular case as or just as an example of like what kind of conflict of interest are we talking about here? What is a conflict of interest? In a case like this, yeah. So I think I think that this is um, it's actually very common. I think it's a fairly common problem, um, or potential problem, I should say, because not all conflicts of interest are a conflict. It's just that we have to identify them so that people can interpret the information in context. Um, and so in this case, um, the corn in the experiment was provided by. Monsanto, who had been bought by Bayer over a two-year-long, very public process. And during that time, our uh, former collaborator had entered into a personal financial relationship with a law firm that represents Bayer. So in this case, had it been, had you discovered that Bayer's treated GMO corn differently it could potentially be in the interest of Bayer to repress that information. Well, so by, I don't by skewing the results of it uh, by you know darting the bear before he came into his yard or something or, or faking his numbers. <laughs> so I actually don't think it would have changed the results at all, and that's one thing that's really complicated when we're talking about potential conflicts of interest is that oftentimes the you know, other relationship, whether it's financial or not, doesn't have an impact on what the person is saying or reporting as a scientist. Um, it doesn't change anything at all, but it does potentially change how people interpret it. And especially when we're talking about extremely contentious subjects such as crop biotechnology, um, pharma, um, uh, oil uh, and gas research, you know, there's a lot of topics where industry interests play a huge role. Um, disclosing any potential conflicts is incredibly important so that the public, other scientists, government agencies, and anybody else who might be reading the publications resulting um, from people who have those potential conflicts can put that information in context and consider it, um, you know, that Maybe there was an influence, um, you know, whether it's ideological or, you know, because you could have an unintentional bias as well. And so that's it's really that disclosure piece that's so important. So to some extent, this comes down to a well, just so people know we're listening in is currently normal in peer reviewed science that an article has a title, you know, publication date, uh, the institution, the, the authors, the institutional affiliation. And then there's a section that's always there these days, I think, on conflict of interest. And you, that, that's where you put this stuff in. So in this case, because you didn't know about the conflict of interest, you would be authoring a paper that would then later potentially be isolated as they didn't write it, write down a conflict of interest in this form. And you're all in on it then. I mean, even though no, you're all basically culpable or potentially conceived as culpable for not having declared that conflict of interest. Exactly. And and so um, we've already presented these results at a conference, both in a poster and an oral presentation without disclosing 
um, a conflict that was present at the time. And the resulting paper uh, could have potentially even been retracted. Um, it's, it's unlikely. I mean, it depends. Uh, if you look at Retraction Watch, which tracks these types of things, um, in some cases, failure to disclose a conflict of interest does result in retraction, and sometimes it just results in them adding it later. Um, but I think in something like this, where it was a highly controversial topic, if nothing else, I think in the public eye, the results probably would have been discredited, which would have been, I think, very frustrating, not just to myself and Carl, but also to all of the people who participated in the research. Right. right. There's a lot yeah, of science going on in there, and they may, as a layperson, not a, not a person that's a scientist, but somebody that's interested in science, once an organization has had an issue with conflict of interest, anything that they publish in the future, then people will kind of look at it kind of side-eyed and wondering how up and above board they're going to be from this point on, um, whether the principal actors you know, were involved in it or not, as long as it's there, the fact that you've kind of missed it on your watch can, <laughs> can make it difficult for you to yeah. be able to get funding or, or for people to take your publications seriously for review. And I think, I think that's really important in this particular case. Um, you know, Carl and I don't, don't have a problem with industry funding at all. Um, and we both have, you know, informal, um, you know, acquaintanceships with, you know, folks in industry um, uh, and even a few friendships. But um, we haven't taken any industry grants. And if we had, we would have definitely disclosed them. Um, and so having had this connection to someone who had concealed industry funding, personal industry funding, um, without disclosing it, uh, could have affected our own personal credibility um, which, which would be really frustrating, um, because we're, we've been working so hard to, um, keep that, uh, unbiased public, you know, like, like we're, we're we want to be public scientists and, 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 um, we don't want to give that up because somebody else took a contract that doesn't make sense. The one case that I was involved in not long ago with, um, with a conflict of interest, lack of disclosure, actually involved a person who wasn't just getting industry funding, they were getting think tank funding, anti-science think tank funding, and published something in a Chinese journal that was uh, without disclosure, and a journal that definitely requires disclosure. And so it was saying something that the think tank would have paid to have him say. There was no, there was no ambiguity that this was a, a clear, a clear case. And what and the, the paper I don't think got retracted, but it got something added into it that said not only what the conflict of interest was, but that it hadn't been previously disclosed. And I just looked that person up. He still got his same job, but uh, it's now very clearly marked on the web page that you go to instead of a researcher at such and such a major institution is now labeled as a part-time externally funded researcher at this major institution at a small and remote and obscure portion of this major institution. So um, that'll probably change when his grants run out and they, and they just erase that part. But in other words, it had a huge effect on the person's career to not disclose. Which and is, which people is so got upset. Shame because if, if that person had just been clear about it, you know, or, you know, maybe not taken that grant and consulted with their university ethics office. And, you know, like there are things that we can do 
um, before we run into these potential problems. <laughs> well, and, it, in this case, though, the point I want to make is that this is a little bit like Al Capone. This is the person who is who is publishing really bad science and getting paid by the by an industry source through a think tank to publish fake science. And he got caught because he didn't disclose. So it's kind of like Al Capone getting uh, getting uh, caught not paying his taxes, even though what he really did was murder 72 people and steal all the money. I, I will say I, I will say on the record that that is not what happened in this particular case. Right. As far as I can tell, no, no problem with the science itself. Um, purely it was the conflict of interest issue on its own. What are you doing from this point on? I don't quite understand how that part works, if you could clarify that. Uh, so, so our next steps are um, that person obviously will be removed from authorship of the paper, although their contributions will be acknowledged um, in the acknowledgement section. Um, and in order to remove someone as an author, um, they can't have contributed substantially to the content of the paper. There are ethics about scientific publishing and authorship. Um, and so we do need to redo a portion of the um, analysis and um, we are going to be redoing the little bit of writing that that person contributed, um, which shouldn't be too big of a problem. Um, the hardest thing is going to be lining up some volunteers now that we have just started a school semester, but um, we'll get it done. I have a question. I'm actually working for a political candidate who, if she wins, will have to declare her uh, her private – well, I'm getting some weird feedback. Okay. She's going to have to declare her income sources. You know, that if she works for a certain industry, a certain company, but because she's a private contractor and is in a business where confidentiality is really important, she's a mediator, she'll have to quit her job. She won't be able to do that because she can't reveal that she's working for Target Corporation because she's the person that goes in when a corporation's having big trouble that no one wants to know about, you know, to help settle it. So she'll just quit her job. But that re gives me a, a question of how do you balance confidentiality and disclosure? That's is that a problem in science? Is that a problem with in, in the scientific area that you're in at all? It is. I think it's increasingly so. I, I don't know if that was necessarily a problem 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but it, I think it definitely is a problem today. Um, that's interesting. I, I wonder if um, the, the mediation, that's sort of a very, a very highly specialized job field. Um, I wonder if there's ways that maybe she could disclose part of it, but not so, yeah, so in her case, it, it's a very, very, very nasty political environment, so there's no solution. But if she would work for a law firm, let's say, and did the mediation, she would just say, I work for this law firm. It's because she's a private contractor. So she can she can solve the problem, but she's going to she's just opting to to quit it and just focus on the uh, on the legislative job if she if she gets elected. That, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that I think that, that that's important, too, is thinking about the environment in which a person works. Some fields are a lot less contentious than others. Um, so if she's in a really, as you said, nasty political environment, then, you know, she's going to have to go like the extra mile. Um, you know, whereas in a more friendly political environment, if that were to exist, um, <laughs> then mm -hmm. maybe she could keep her job and, and, you know, somehow find a creative way to disclose. Um, but in science, um, I think that there's a lot of, um, non-disclosure or confidentiality agreements when scientists are talking to um, companies large and small and even sometimes when they're talking with each other. Um, if you're working on a, 
breakthrough um, or if you're trying to discuss um, something that hasn't been patented yet or that, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to patent because by the time you get to the patent office, it's already going to be obsolete, like those types of things, then some sort of an agreement to not talk about it can be really helpful and allow people to collaborate. Um, so confidentiality, non-disclosure agreements are an important tool and a, a good tool um, that provides a benefit to our society. That said, people entering into those types of agreements need to be really careful and think about um, what other agreements they're already a party to um, that might require particular types of disclosure. They need to think about other types of promises or um, to different organizations or to the public. Um, and, and they need to think about, um, you know, how it's going to affect the, the rest of their work that they're doing. Uh, and so as a scientist, if you know that you have to disclose for publications, which is a given, um, there might be journals that have looser um, conflict of interest reporting policies, but you're probably not shooting for those journals. You're probably shooting for the higher journals. And Nature, for example, has a very clear conflict of interest policy. Um, and so if you know you're going to hopefully publish something someday, you're going to need to disclose. And so making sure that any confidentiality agreement includes some, some sort of language that you can show, that you can say, I worked on um, something with somebody, even if you can't particularly say what it was. Because nobody needs to know all the details. You don't need to know, oh, the trade secrets that you were talking about in a meeting, right? That's not important. What's important to know is that you had a financial relationship potentially, um, or you advised someone or, you know, whatever the relationship was um, so that other people can put your work in context. Um, and so I did want to circle back around to that nature publishing policy. I think that they are, I mean, you know, uh, nature and science are the, the gold standard publishers. Um, nature has a really great, um, policy for their confident for their conflict of interest disclosure. And I recommend that anybody who's listening, go and check out their page because they specifically say, if you have a conflict of interest, then you can just say, I have a conflict and I can't talk about it. I don't remember their exact wording, but it's, it's really clear. And they give you an option for how to disclose, even if you can't say what it is. Yeah. It seems to me, you know, in academia, there's sort of a, a scale uh, people cynically refer to the Sanskrit language versus, you know, cancer research departments, you know, which is actually important versus which is really maybe interesting. But if it didn't exist, nobody would even you know notice. And I, I you know, so it's in my heart to imagine conflict of interest in the Sanskrit language or in my field of anthropology. You know, it's, it, it, there actually are potential conflict of interest. But but when you get down into academics that overlap with industry, like food, anything having to do with food or medicine or technology, or really almost everything that's done in a university, um, there's a really big scale conflict of interest where these days departments are funded by industry. Professorships are often funded by industry or indirectly or directly. Graduate fellowships are funded by industry. And then you get a job in industry or you become a consultant for industry or you become a lobbyist for industry. Isn't it all one big giant conflict of interest? And is, is, uh, 
making it all correct at the level of authorship and involvement of individual scientists, is that enough or should we have something else? And what would that be? Well, I think that it's important to have a bigger conversation about this. Um, you know, we just had some information come out during this um, glyphosate trial in California um, where they showed how um, Monsanto had been doing all of these things behind the scenes to influence the public conversation. And it was hidden. Um, and that people have a problem with that. And I think that that highly influenced the court decision in a way that, um, you know, the, the science could not compete with. Mm. So I think that companies need to be, it, it should not all fall to, fall to the scientists. I think that's unfair and unrealistic to expect that every researcher should understand the ins and outs of conflict of interest reporting, the legal problems that are going on, the ethical problems. Um, instead, I think that there should be some sort of training at the university level and the universities need to have more of a involvement there. Um, and then companies that are asking scientists to come into these agreements need to be making sure that they're not making things unduly difficult for scientists as well. Uh, with that glyphosate uh, trial, that was a situation in which a person had claimed that the cancer that they had had been caused by spraying glyphosate um, in fields. And the jury settlement was, uh, what, what was that What was that initial settlement that the jury had settled on? It was over $300 million, wasn't it? Something like that, yeah. It was it was really crazy. And, and the part that was that was really interesting to me is that I think a lot of people um, were saying, well, you know, it's just that the jury was stupid. You know, everyday average people are stupid. Well, no, actually, the jury included people that should have been able to evaluate the, the evidence, the scientific evidence on its own. But it doesn't matter if you're, you know, a microbiologist or a lawyer or you otherwise have training where you should be able to interpret these things when the public conversation has been so highly, you know, uh, complicated by these behind the scenes dealings, um, people don't like that. It sounds shady, even if it's not. Yeah, I, the people that I know who are really not happy about that particular technology are not stupid people. I mean, I'd happen to think they're wrong, but they are uh, not wrong about most other stuff and they have advanced degrees and they are people who do research in science and teaching, and it's not just, you know. But, uh, you know, another thing is, I, I, uh, the old in the old days, when everything was fine, mm -hmm. um, the, the government paid scientists at universities to do research that was then basically made available and for the rest of the world, for humanity to, to benefit from. Obviously, the famous, you know, Borlaug wheat studies that shaped how we grow our food and so on. Uh, and we don't do it that way anymore. And that's probably an idealistic comparison I'm making. That's probably not realistic. But I've always thought it would be a good idea if we went back to that in some way by having some kind of a well-funded research centers that were explicitly unconnected to industry. And their purpose, because they can't really do the original research, that would be inefficient, would be to verify and duplicate research. Well, we don't we don't replicate research enough anyway. And then you can have a kind of independent I mean, the government already does that. Uh, agencies, uh, there's all kinds of ways in which research is kind of verified independently, but to just put more effort into that and have it be 
such that we have people who can't have a conflict of interest in institutions that can't have a conflict of interest saying, yeah, this research looks not so good. This research looks very good somehow. I mean, we do have some things like that. Like it makes me think about um, Cochrane reviews that look at the medical literature on a subject and evaluate its merits and the conflicts of interest and, and all the other, you know, things swirling around a topic and and help to distill the information down. Um, I don't know mm -hmm. if there's something similar in agriculture, you know, I guess extension offices are kind of doing stuff like that, but they're severely underfunded as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think government decreases in government funding has definitely led us to the place where we are today. Science does have to be funded somehow. I mean, nobody, I mean, you can do a certain amount of volunteer work, but really the amount of work that needs to be done to get some of the answers that we need, there, there has to be money that comes in to, to support scientists and their equipment and all that kind of stuff in the meantime. And so, of course, there's a big opening there for industry to get involved because they need answers as well. So it's, it's not just about science either. There's also the communications aspect too. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a yeah. lot of time to do the research and, you know, translate the science for a layperson's audience. It's a lot of work. Um, and to expect people to do it on a volunteer basis is really unrealistic. Yeah. And there aren't, there aren't enough Carl Zimmer's out there to, to fix that problem. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's not, he's not a volunteer either. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> Well, it does seem to be a matter of separation. I mean, if you had, if you had, uh, regulatory agencies reviewing and uh, reviewing work and making sure that work was legit, uh, you couldn't have them staffed by people who are going in and out of the industry side. And right now, because we're America, you can. There's no way to tell someone your career cannot ever include getting a job with a private industry now that you're working for a regulatory agency. You can never do it. You can limit those things a little bit, but it's very difficult to do that. Um, you know, yeah, so it's, I mean, there are, there are definitely, so, so disclosure, I'm a former USDA employee and right. at a regulatory agency. Um, and there are protections in place within government as well. Um, if you worked at a particular company and then you enter government, um, you cannot work on projects that involve that company for a certain amount of time that I believe is over a year. Um, right. So, um, so there are, and, and then if you work for government, there are limitations on what you can do when you're off duty. Um, right. so, so there are some ethical, you know, um, restrictions there to help navigate those problems in government. Um, but every, everything could be cl more clear, I think. Um, one one problem that I think we have is, is this idea that something coming out of industry is automatically a problem. It's not. And I feel like by doing some of these shady behind the scenes practices or sh shady looking anyways, mm -hmm. um, industry has perpetuated the idea that they're doing unethical things. If they had been public and transparent all along, then there would probably still be some, you know, some distrust, but I wonder if it would be less than it is today. You know, it only takes a few incidents like that to brand every single person who works for an industry as being in on the evil plot. I had a conversation uh, 
last year with a person I know who happens to be a very highly placed lawyer at a major uh, a company that does something having to do with agriculture. And this individual is going off to another country to to represent them in a trial in which someone had been caught doing something wrong. And I said, you know, what's your status? Are you going to, what's your stance? Are you going to have to like, you know, convince them they did something wrong? I said, no, no, we screwed up. We did something really bad. People are getting fired and we're really, really unhappy that this happens. <laughs> we're going to pay the fines and we're going to get rid of a lot of people because this should not have occurred. And it wasn't a science thing. It was a more of a monopoly kind of thing, uh, violating the, the, another country's laws. But the, the people who work for companies like this, I know I live in Plymouth, Minnesota. I'm surrounded by biotech and ag people. A lot of my friends work, you know, at sometimes high level positions at some of these companies. And they're meanwhile, people I know are, you know, liberal, pro science, trying to do the right thing, trying to control, um, you know, big industries to some extent. Like they have the same political and social attitudes I have, yet they work for the big giant evil companies. And it, it, it's not, I don't see it as a, as it's not hard for me to resolve it because I know these people. But I think, I think it's really easy to assume that everybody who works for Mobile, Exxon, you know, Cargill, that they're all in on the plot and that the plot is deep and wide and vast and, and, uh, really and completely nefarious. Yeah. I think I, I am totally with you on that. I, I mean, I, I have lots of friends who work in different types of companies and as well. And, and it just seems like a really silly way to think about things. Um, you know, I like to ask people, how much would it cost to get you to say something that you don't believe? Right. <laughs> how much would it take? I mean, you know, maybe maybe you have a price, depending on what it is. What if somebody was asking you to say something that would hurt people? You know, like, <laughs> and so it really tells me if somebody believes those things, it tells me that they're not a very moral person themselves. And they'll get, and actually you can get caught. <laughs> and yeah, and there's that too. You know, it's, 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 you know, if you, you spend your whole career lying for money, if, if that even exists, um, you know, that's what, you know, uh, what's that TV show about the white collar crime? My husband watches that all the time. <laughs> I, I don't thought, know. I don't remember what it's called. It's it's very interesting, but it's, it's basically about people who, who you know, lie and cheat and, and defraud people for money. And I will tell you, I don't think I've ever seen an episode that involved a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. You should submit the, the screenplay. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Oh boy. <laughs> we get we get executive uh, co-producer credit, though, don't we, Greg? Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody makes mistakes, um, and I think everybody should have the opportunity to. Um, own up to their mistakes, but um, when people don't take the opportunity to own up their mistakes, then we just have to keep keep going. So, are you are you and Carl now? You're looking for uh, volunteers to join you in Biofortified. Oh yeah. So so from the beginning of our organization. Um, our goal is to get more people interested and involved in science communication, um, particularly around food and agriculture issues. So yes, definitely anybody who's listening, who thinks that they might want to get started in blogging, um, who might want to do um, videos or make infographics or um, help design our next plushie, um, mm -hmm. you know, our editing, 
um, or even serve on our board, then please, um, you know, contact us. Um, you can find us easily on Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And um, we love to talk um, because we're all about um, democratizing the conversation about food and agriculture um, and, sure. and, and taking the fear away from people. It's food and food is not scary. It doesn't have to be scary. Um, and that's really a good way of addressing these issues because you're bringing more people in and having a more open conversation. Everybody just knows more. Yeah, and, and that's really what it is. And, and it's not um, – but I think it's also important that, uh, you know, this we could have a whole other conversation about this. You know, it's not about just telling people, here are some facts. You should know better now because it's not just about the facts because it's all this other stuff we are, we've already discussed, the conflicts of interest issues, the stories of the people that are that are involved. You know, there's a lot more – than just sharing some facts. Um, but my idea is that if we had people in communities all over the world who were willing to talk to their friends and families about food and agriculture and they had some solid evidence-based information to share, um, then eventually we would see um, regulations that would be more evidence-based as well as uh, you know people voted in <clears throat> more science-friendly politicians and um, started to buy products uh, that were more science-based as opposed to ones that had uh, labeling that was perhaps not as science-based. It's really what can each individual person do in their own community to change the conversation. The level of people that you're looking to join are at any scientific knowledge and expertise? Are you, are you kind of looking for people that have credential science backgrounds? Our communications backgrounds, or what? Um, who, who are you looking to join in? I think it really depends um, on what what type of stuff they're interested in doing. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, if it's someone who um, is interested in editing, you know, other people's writing, then obviously they need to have some some sort of background in editing, mm -hmm. sort of experience doing that. Um, if they, they want to write write about social issues, probably know about that, you know, those types of things. So experience as appropriate. But yeah, you don't have to be a scientist to write about these issues. We all eat food. Um, and so we all have some, some knowledge, some information to bring to the table. So the um, Federal Trade Commission has rules about advertising. And, you know, to boil it down really simply, the rules are to make sure that people know they're looking at an advertisement when they see one. So usually when you see an ad, you can tell, oh, yeah, they're trying to sell me something. And you can interpret the information knowing that. But if you're looking at something and it's not quite clear whether it's an ad, like sometimes you'll see something that looks like an article in a magazine. But then, like, at the end, it'll say, like, you know, this article was, was um, sponsored by so-and-so. Like, that type of disclosure of that information is required by, by the Federal Trade Commission because it's not obvious that that article um, was paid for by a business interest. And I think that that kind of has parallels um, to this type of disclosure conversa conversation that we're having. When we talk to somebody who works for a particular company, then you know if someone introduces themselves and says, hey, I, I work for you know, company so-and-so, then you know that they're, what they're saying could potentially be influenced by the fact that they work for their company. 
not necessarily, right? But possibly, and, and you can sort of put their information in context. But if you don't know who they work for, maybe they're an industry scientist and they have a grant from that company, or they might have a relationship behind the scenes with that company, you know, those types of things. And there's, there's, they're not telling you about it. Um, then that could be a problem because you have no way of knowing um, unless they tell you. Just like if you read that article in the magazine that's been written and paid for by a company, you don't know that it's by a company unless it says. But we don't have a Federal Trade Commission for science. We have this like patchwork of ethics rules um, depending on what institution you're at and what publication you're trying to um, put your work into and things like that. And so um, even though we don't have this one overarching thing that controls or, or that advises how scientists should disclose, it's mm -hmm. still important that we take those steps to say, put it on our website or put it on our publications or just let people know when we give a talk, I have a relationship with so-and-so company. Um, and you can even say it doesn't, I, I don't think it's influenced what I'm talking to you about today, but I needed to let you know that. Yeah, so that sounds like a good model for how to think about this. So I wonder, uh, you know, the Federal Trade Commission itself can say those things about advertising because they have evolved over time into an agency that has that power to do so. That's right. I, w I wonder if there's another existing agency, maybe even including the Federal Trade Commission, that has the power to do that with respect to the reporting of scientific results. That's an interesting thought. I, I don't know. You, you know who could potentially do that would be um, granting agencies. Um, a lot of, a, a lot, even though we, we, we talked about how a lot of science is now industry funded, I, I would say many, if not most scientists still get at least some amount of government. Um, I think that government granting agencies could make it a requirement that uh, are fully disclosing um, all of their potential conflicts uh, in, in a public way um, as a requirement for their accepting a grant. Um, so that would so, include even if if they have a non-disclosure agreement using that sort of nature style, um, I have a competing interest but can't disclose exactly what it is type of disclosure. Some of that might already be in place for certain kinds of grants with NIH, NSF, and so on. But I wonder if, if you're also suggesting maybe a little bit more than that, like you're a scientist and you're listed with the NSF or NIH as a person who's signed off on an agreement to always do proper disclosure. It's like your resume has your disclosure on it. I think that's a fantastic idea. And then you're yeah. just, you know, then it's it's kind of, Universal. You still have to do the individual disclosures on papers, but it's universal that, that you're not you're not failing to disclose in places where you can get away with it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, oh, and that reminds me of one other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, I think that these types of non-disclosure agreements and confidentiality confidentiality agreements need to be somehow talked about when scientists are serving on government committees or as um, scientific advisors and political campaigns, you know, all those types of 
public service roles where we're supposed to be serving as like impartial advisors. Well, if we're saying I'm not going to disclose any conflicts, but then we also have these NDAs behind the scenes, that's a huge problem. And we need to, our society needs to find ways for scientists to both disclose and be able to continue their work when confidentiality is required. Right. That that kind of information does have to come out if you're testifying. testifying. But if you're working for a candidate and advising a political entity or a campaign, it is simply isn't even part of the process. Yeah. Or if you work like there's all these um, advisory groups across government, um, and I'm, I'm not sure what their rules are um, for disclosure and NDAs and things like that. Yeah. It's probably different. If you're a, if you're a registered lobbyist, that's probably one thing. And if you're not, it's probably a different set of things. That's true. That's true. And, 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 you know, it's, it's a good thing that we have certain rules for lobbyists, but a lot of people serve in a lobbyist type role, um, but don't have those rules. So we need to find ways to, to solve that problem too. Yeah. Good point. Sorry. So that, that is related. I mean, if the company is involved in the same sector, then I would say yes. Um, you know, if we're, you know, uh, you know, if the research is on um, oil and gas exploration and you have, if you're serving as an expert witness for a company that does oil and gas exploration, then you probably should disclose, right? Yeah, because if you're hiding it, then then when you publish your work, then people are going to wonder, okay, well, did they alter their presentation of the results in a way that favors what this industry does? Right, because it's really sort of like even if you have some competing companies within the industry in general, you know, and industry, all the companies within it will have similar goals. Um, so, so, yeah, I think um, – I think even if it's a different company, it's still important to, to talk about it in, in some way, um, even if there's no change, right? Like that's, you know, I think it's really important to say that <clears throat> there's, I think, lots of cases where people disclose a conflict of interest and there's no evidence that there's been um, a change in the information that's been presented, um, but because there's, potential there for influence, there still needs to be disclosure. Are there other aspects of this that we're missing? I think I think we've covered a lot. Um, it was really, really fun to talk with you guys. Thank you again for downloading and listening to and sharing this podcast, Iconocast. For more links and details on the issues discussed, please visit the website, iconocast.com.